When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Matt Chancy with Coastal One, member FINRA, SIPC. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is Matt Chancy, and this is another episode of the Tax Alpha Podcast. Today's special guest with us is Randy Fox. Uh, Randy is a certified financial planner. He's also a credited estate planner and the principal at Two Hawks Consulting. He's got more than 35 years in the financial planning business owner experience, and for the last uh, 15 years or so, he specialized in estate planning for high net worth families that would be 10 million and up with a strong emphasis on philanthropic and family legacy planning. Morning, Randy. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Matt. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, of all the different paths you could have picked, I guess, you know, tell me how the, the course that you took ended up in charitable estate planning. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, I was in a retail financial planning practice for the first part of my career, the first 10, 12 years. Uh, And that included uh, the passage of the 86 Tax Act. Uh, For those old enough to remember, the 86 Tax Act essentially eliminated a lot of the tax-saving vehicles that were available. Uh, They used to call them tax shelters back in the day. And shortly after that, there was an issue of Financial Planning Magazine, I think it was at the time, or Financial Advisor Magazine, that talked about an organization down in Indianapolis called Renaissance that was teaching people about something called a charitable remainder trust. Uh, and my two partners at the time said, hey, listen, why don't you go learn it? We don't want to learn anything new. And so I went. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey. I am a child of the 60s. You know, we were the generation that was going to change the universe now called the baby boomers. But once I understood charitable remainder trusts, I also understood that I was a one trick pony. Uh, you know, I knew charitable remainder trust. I didn't know anything else. And so I was trying to solve, you know, I was a hammer looking for a nail, like a lot of advisors seem to be. Uh, but I decided I just wanted to get more expansive. And so I took every course I could find on estate and wealth transfer planning but always keeping in the back of my head that I wanted to focus on the charitable side because I didn't think anybody was really doing that side uh, or doing it very well. Uh, it was the province of attorneys and it was basically for the uber wealthy and it was misunderstood as to how it worked. And so I just carved that niche off by my, by myself and along with a few other people that I knew in the country kind of dug in and decided you know, that's what I'd focus on. So virtually every plan that I do, uh, not because uh, it's a must, but just I can see the opportunity 
to include philanthropy in a way that hasn't been included for families. Uh, and when I include it, it tends to gain a lot of ground and get a lot of traction. Uh, so uh, kind of the direction I've, I've decided to go. I always figured I could raise more money with other people's money than I could by giving it away myself. Um, there's a, a lot of people I could get a lot of leverage that way. Sure, sure. Understood. Well, you know, you said a couple of interesting things in there. Number one, you had a couple of partners that didn't want to learn anymore. So they're like, you go figure it out, right? I find that to be very common, you know, in the space. You, you, you know, some people have a thirst for knowledge and want to keep looking and learning and other people don't. So I hear that all the time. And that you took the path to find the educational classes to learn everything you could. It was a function of self-study. Nobody was pushing you to learn this stuff, to figure out how to service the clients better. It was an internal push of yourself to say, I, I need to figure out how to do this. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I've always, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm, I, you know, if there were classes around a day, I'd take them. I, uh, part of it is, you know, I was, I was a college dropout, right, in the middle of the 60s during the Vietnam War. Uh, and I've always felt like, Everybody else had an edge on me, uh, so I just decided I was going to get good at something. Um, I don't know if that was part of it or all of it. I don't really care. It's just what I chose to do. Uh, and now I've turned around. You know, we do a lot of education, uh, and we're creating educational courses because I see this dearth of high quality planning in the universe. Uh, and I don't. The my generation is aging out. And because we've had this very high estate exemption for the last several years, mm -hmm. very, very few people really understand or have the depth of knowledge to tackle high-end estates. And so there's, there's a gap there, and it's a huge gap. And yeah. I'm worried about the wealth transfer uh, you know, not being as smooth as it could be for many, many, many families in the country. Yeah. I figure if selling somebody an annuity would solve all their estate problems, nobody would have an estate problem, right? <laughs> yeah. I wish it was that easy, right? <laughs> I know there are, there are guys who attempt that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. But I, I do get to read a lot of estate plans and I see the inadequacy of the planning. I see clients having one idea about what they want and their document saying something completely different and them not really knowing it or understanding it. And, you know, if that happens for people that have $40 million, what's it like for people that have 5, 10, 15, 20? You know, it's, it's got to be just as bad or worse. Sure, sure. I'm, I am starting to see um, a down market trend of things that have historically been high, offered to much higher wealth clients being brought somewhat down market to the middle markets. I am seeing a little bit of that. I would still tell you there's not enough people that have that skill set, but I am starting to see things that you would have only thought would have showed up like in a hundred million dollar clients. Now people talking about that in the, you know, five, 10 and 20 client, you know, market range. So, um, you know, I guess if you're bringing down those really good ideas down market a little bit, maybe you'll stand out. Right. I guess. It's well, I, I think, uh, first of all, there's there are studies done. U.S. Trust is the one that comes to mind the most. Uh, and the U.S. Trust uh, did a study a few years ago with a philanthropic initiative. And one of the things that uh, that they said uh, or they concluded in in interviewing several thousand high net worth families was if we could find an advisor who would talk to us meaningfully about their philanthropy, 31% of the respondents said they would seek that advisor. Now that to me, if I was a retail advisor, that's a marketing plan. 
right? Yeah. Let's, let's get good at philanthropic planning and let's learn how to discuss this. And that will attract high net worth clients like flies. I mean, but I don't see anybody doing it. Uh, well, you know, all the all the product manufacturing companies created the DAF, and now that's like you know this uh, you know the solution to everything, right? Well, it's funny you say that. I was on the phone with two clients, yet two potential clients yesterday. Two different Zoom meetings have sold practice for many millions of dollars, and both of them were saying, "Yeah, well, we're just going to put you know a million dollars in a DAF or two million dollars in a DAF, and that's how I'll get a tax deduction." And I said, you realize that there's other tools where, you know, a DAF is great, but you're just giving money away. It means you don't get it back. You don't get any income from it. I said, what if there was a solution where we could get you the same tax deduction or a similar tax deduction, but we could also benefit your family at the same time? And they they both kind of looked at me and said, no one said we could do that. Well, you know, today there are proposals that have been emailed to their advisor uh, that demonstrate both of those uh, opportunities. And so, you know, it's just, it's a knowledge thing, right? DAFs are easy. Everybody can do a DAF, but is it really the best thing for the client in the circumstances they're in? Well, if you don't know any better, maybe it is. Um, But if you know better, then you have to say, well, there's option one, option two, option three, option four, you know, which one suits you better? Yep. No, I agree. And and for the listeners out there, DAF is a donor advised fund uh, in case somebody's not uh, a try, uh, forget to the industry vernacular sometimes can trip people up. So it's a donor advised fund. All of the, it's basically a kind of a mutual fund that has a philanthropic wrapper around it that almost all the big, you know, Fidelity and a bunch of the other big firms offer their own version of it, Schwab. Well, the history of the DAF, it was actually you know, the DAFs must be uh, housed by a public charity. And they were started by, I believe it's the New York Community Trust in 1959. So it's, you know, the charities started it. It was, it's a great idea. And Fidelity essentially founded a charity to run a DAF program and Schwab and Vanguard and now everybody else. Uh, And they're wonderful vehicles. I don't have any issue with any of them, except for it's not the only tool. That's right. I tell people that all the time. I'm like, I hear what you're saying, but is that all that was presented? Because there's about another dozen ways to accomplish a very similar outcome with all different features and benefits. Is that the only one that they showed you? Like, you know, so same thing. So let's dig into it. So on our pre-call, you talked a little bit about a strategy that you're doing today that is, um, and I don't want to steal your thunder here, the pooled income fund, but its origin kind of spun out of the charitable remainder trust, a CRT. Well, it's similar to a CRT, Matt. Um, CRTs, and again, I don't, I'm not a code head, but just to give you a distinction, uh, CRTs come under section 664, uh, Pooled income funds come under 642 C5, different code sections passed into law in the same year, uh, 1969, signed into law by none other than Richard M. Nixon, uh, which basically formalized many of the charitable giving vehicles. So like a CRT, a pooled income fund is what's called a split interest trust. There is a gift to a charitable trust. There is a calculation that's made based on an income interest back to the donor and a final gift to the charity at some point in history. Um, Pooled income funds like DAFs must be run by a 
a public charity. So if you look, you know, everybody's going to go Google pooled income funds. You're going to see Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford run pooled income funds, but they run them for their benefit. So you give them money, they manage the money. They'll only take stocks or cash. They give it to, they'll give you an income for just your lifetime. And when you die, all of your money goes to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, or Stanford. Great for them. You know, is that what everybody wants? Probably not. Uh, but a number of years ago, six or seven now, a colleague of mine who has been in the charitable world for his entire career, as a matter of fact, a, a second generation charitable guy, uh, his father worked for charities and he does, and now his daughter does, said, I want to do something that no one's ever done. I want to set up a pooled income fund program, but it's for advisors and donors. And where the money goes to charity, that's secondary. It'll go to charity, but it, but we're going to make this so it's advisor-facing and donor-facing. And so uh, he asked me to sit on the board of this charity, and I have been promoting pooled income funds because what you'll find differently than a charitable remainder trust is that the charitable income tax deduction is much, much bigger. Uh, there's much more latitude in how the money can be invested. And you can also, because of the way they're structured, uh, you can run income for multiple generations. You can't do that with a charitable remainder trust. So many of the pooled income funds we've set up are for two or three, and one is even for four generations of income beneficiaries. So for those clients who say, hey, listen, we're just not that charitable, well, how about if the money stays in your family for three generations before it goes to charity? It wasn't going to do that in your estate plan anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so now we have a better mousetrap. We let donors hire their own money managers, pick their own charities, donate virtually whatever asset they have with only a couple of exceptions. And you get the same no capital gains tax on sale, charitable income tax deduction on donation. Uh, you know, it's got a lot of positive, positive attributes, man. So for the listeners that, that aren't familiar with this like us, Let's slowly walk through the individual elements of it. So let's assume, let's, let's start with a fact pattern. Let's kind of talk out a case study. Let's sure. assume the person that's got a business that they ultimately wanted to sell, right? And they want to avoid the capital gains on it. And then they have some charitable intent, right? And I think that's probably what we would need to start with to say, hey, do you want to have this conversation, right? That's my typical conversation, right? Okay. I've got a, I've got a concentration in my portfolio of low basis stock. I got a closely held business. I got today I'm having a call with someone who's got a piece of real estate out in California that he bought for a million dollars that he's getting an offer for $9 million. And in California, you know, with the state income tax, uh, you know, his capital gain is 40%. Yeah. So he's going, oh, I don't really want to give 40% to the government. Do I have to? And so conversation number four or five is happening today with his advisory team. Sure. So that's a real case. Let's have that conversation. I mean, obviously you're not going to use his name. Let's have that conversation. Guy bought a piece of real estate in California. Let's just for round numbers say he's going to sell it for 10 million bucks, right? So in California, if he sold it for $10 million, assuming he's depreciated it down to zero, he's got a $10 million capital gain. His tax in California is going to be $3,700,000, right? Federal, federal capital gains tax plus California state income tax. Uh, maybe the net investment income tax. So 37.1. Yeah, that, That's a lot of money to give up. 
So that would mean he would have $6.3 million left to invest, that money be in his estate, and he'd have to produce income from that asset for the rest of his life. And so based off the way that you know financial advisors, because you talk to them all day long, what would the financial advisor tell him that he could take off of that $6.3 million as an income? Would 4% be a fair number? 4, 4% maybe. Right. The yep. 4% rule would come into apply there off of off of $6.3 million, right? Yeah. And I think he'd be happy to say, hey, give me 4%. I'll take it all day. Right. We've yeah, had those so, conversations. So 6 million, 4%. So now you're looking at $240,000 a year in income, 20 grand a month uh, in income that he's pulling off of this portfolio uh, after a $10 million liquidity event on the real estate. So that's right. that's the fact pattern that a, that a normal and, and, advisor- and that, that asset's in his estate, right? Because he sold it, is still in his estate. Yep. So if he has a taxable estate and he does no other planning, uh, you know, that, that $6.4 million is going to shrink by 40% when he dies. That, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Understood. So now that's a plan. That's the no plan plan, right? That's the no plan plan. <laughs> the no plan plan. So, so then he'd meet you and you guys have a conversation with his advisor. And so now the conversation's starting to sound like what? What's the first benefit? Well, so he, he, one thing he could consider, he could do a charitable remainder trust. Here's the problem with a charitable remainder trust. Because of his age and his children's ages, he can run the charitable remainder trust for one generation, just his, his and his wife's life. Okay. Um, that's great, except for now we've disinherited the kids from Giving, you know, he could sell it in the charitable remainder trust. He can avoid the capital gains tax. He can get an income from the CRT on the whole $10 million and a CRT payout 5% is a minimum. So, you know, that's a $500,000 a year, twice as so, much. So now, so now he throws the $10 million into the CRT, sells it in there, pays no capital gains, and the right. CRT forces him to take back a 5% income stream on $10 million. So now he's got $500,000 of income to live off of as opposed to the two forty dollars on an after-tax basis, right? The other side. Exactly. However, okay. he dies the next day. He and his wife get hit by a truck or they go on their, you know, vacation they've been waiting to take and the plane crashes or something awful happens, that $10 million is gone from his estate, his kids get zip, right? So how do we, whoa, 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 that's bad. We don't want to do that. So how do we solve for that? <laughs> well, you know, the normal solution is let's buy some second to die life insurance uh, to replace the asset in the estate. That's going to cost money at his age, could cost $100,000 a year. Now he's making gifts uh, to a trust, using up his exemption, as crummy notices every year, uh, you know, all of the stuff that goes on with buying big trusts, uh, big policies at older ages. And so somebody might call that a wealth replacement trust where you're structuring that. Is that, yeah. is that common vernacular? The common vernacular. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Very good. So we sell it in the trust. We don't pay the capital gains taxes. We deploy a larger capital base if we want to, with, for income, if we want to bring that back into our estate or out of our estate and not disinherit our heirs, we're basically taking some of that surplus income between the 500 and the 240 on the do nothing plan and the other plan. And we're buying life insurance with some of that money to bring those assets on a tax advantage way back into our estate. Correct. And if we're doing really good planning, we might use some of the income tax deduction we got from the transfer to the CRT that we've saved income taxes on to, you know, front some of the premium and maybe front load the policy so we don't have to pay for it for a few years. Again, those are just 
the way you so, approach the plan, right? The rule of thumb on that, giving everybody kind of an estimate, if you threw a $10 million asset into a charitable vehicle and you paid no capital gains taxes on it when you sold it, what type of income tax deduction might you receive for doing that? Well, the income tax deduction is going to be based on the age of the donors and the payout rate of the trust. Uh, and for someone his age, uh, the deduction's likely to be in the 30% range. Okay. So $10 million. $3 million charitable income. $3 million income tax deduction. And a lot. Yeah. And no capital gains tax. And no capital gains. Okay. Because I don't, a lot of people just don't understand that. They're not familiar that why would I get an income tax deduction at the same time that I'm getting, that I'm not paying in capital gains? How do you get both of those benefits, right? Well, again, remember you're making a gift to charity. They're just not going to get it till the end of your life. So there's an, there's a set of IRS rules that say that here's how we calculate the gift based on the payout rate of this trust and your ages. It's just a formula. Sure. Uh, CRTs are tax exempt. So when you sell a piece of real estate, it's a tax exempt sale. You don't pay capital gains tax. What most people don't realize is when money comes out of the trust, you're actually some portion of it will be taxable at the capital gains rate. So essentially a CRT works like an installment sale to some extent. Okay. Is it kind of LIFO taxation? It's actually WIFO taxation. It's called worst in, first out. CRTs have their own particular four-tier accounting system, uh, which again, we use administrators to administer CRTs simply because when people that aren't trained do it, they always do it wrong. I have a friend who owns the website, the CRT repair shop or something like that, because everybody screws these up. Gotcha. There you go. I have not stumbled across that website. <laughs> the only thing more expensive than hiring a planner is hiring another planner to fix a broken plan, right? Uh, something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on one of those now, too. So uh, let's contrast to the pool income fund. Yes. Um, same structure, right? We're going to transfer the $10 million to a pooled income fund. But in this case, we are going to name the children and the grandchildren as successive income beneficiaries. Okay. So mom and dad die. Kids are now going to get income from that asset for as long as the kids are alive. Also, uh, grandchildren are going to get income for as long as the grandkids are alive. Now we have a very, very, I'm going to just give you the vanilla uh, pooled income fund. By the way, the charitable income tax deduction, even though this is three generations, so about the same. About 30%. So quick question I have from an income payout perspective, is it around the same? Is it a little more? Is it a little less? Good question. So pooled income funds function differently than uh, CRTs. There's not a forced payout. They are like what's called a net income uh, CRT, where only the income that's earned comes out. So we need to invest for income. Uh, That can be done. And this charity pays out. Uh, interest, dividends, rents, royalties, short-term capital gains, and some of the even realized long-term capital gains. So we can create the same sort of income we could get out of a CRT. However, we have a special structure we've devised for this. We're actually going to be able to get the client a 4% tax-free income for the rest of his life and for the rest of the kid's life and for the grandkids' lives, 
And we're also have just structured this in a very unique way. But in most pooled income fund circumstances, uh, you know, this wouldn't be possible. Interesting. So is that is how you get to the 4% tax-free income part of the secret sauce? Or is that something that you can talk about? That's a secret sauce. Okay. No secret sauce on here today. You know, Colonel Sanders Uh, wouldn't give it away and neither should you. (laughs) uh, It's a little complex for the, for, I think this podcast, needless to say, it can be done, but in the, even so the, the thing here that we're doing is we've included three generations of income beneficiaries, gotten the same benefits, but now we can pass income down to those heirs. If the client wants to buy life insurance, he's still got the same capacity. He's going to still get income from this trust on a hundred percent of the value. So even if he only got 4% compared to the 6.3, the 6.3 million he was left with before he's 400,000 versus 240,000. He's still $150,000 a good. If that 4% is tax-free, now he's really almost double that in California because the ordinary income rate, uh, which he'd be taxed on the CRT from, uh, means his 240 is really almost 120. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So let me ask a question. You, you made a statement before you said there's just a few assets that almost all assets can be thrown into this charitable structure and sold, but there's a few that can't. There's some exemptions. We, what are the Well, you, you can't, we can't take S-Corp stock because almost okay. nothing can, right? Uh, but there is the opportunity for an S-Corp that's going to be sold to convert to a C-Corporation, contribute C-Corporation stock, and let the new owners buy the C-Corporation stock. If there's a more than 50% change of ownership, the new owners can elect S, right? They can reelect S. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, we can't take the S-Corp stock without blowing the S election, uh, we can't take municipal bonds and uh, pooled income funds can't own municipal bonds. And you can't take things like commercial annuities and you can't name uh, pooled income funds as beneficiaries of IRAs, for instance. Okay. Other than that, pretty much fair game. Okay. Fair enough. Good stuff. All right. So we throw it in, we get an income tax deduction that's comparable to a CRT. We get income tax advantage 4% over three generations we can use some of that excess income to build a wealth replacement trust, just like we would with a CRT. What happens to the money after we've passed through three generations? Where does it go? Money goes to charity. Whatever charities, whatever charities the donor chooses, it can be one, ten, or a hundred. Actually, flows into a donor advised fund and then falls under the donor advised fund rules. Whatever, however they want to give it away, they give it away. Okay. So I guess the question would be if somebody is, you know, and I've always heard if you're going to consider philanthropic planning, there's kind of a, there's three people you can leave your money to. You can leave it to your family, you can leave it to the IRS, or you can leave it to a charity and you have to pick two of the three, right? You, you are quoting Randy Fox, I believe that's. Oh, it might have been. Do not credit me with that, but I heard that probably 35 years ago or 30 years ago. And I tell that to virtually every client I ever work with. Well, somebody taught it to me. So I might have indirectly have learned it from you. <laughs> Part of the family tree. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I could absolutely be. I, I, I've, I have never had anybody pick the government, but that's who their, that's who their charitable beneficiary is by default. You know, one of the things I, I like to tell families is that estate taxes are an optional tax. Capital gains tax are an optional tax. 
The way you opt into the system is by doing nothing. If you don't do anything, you have defaulted to the government. In order to exclude them, you actually have to plan. Uh, and we don't want to take money away from your family. We want to take money away from the government. Certainly, there's something in the world you care more about than the government. If you don't, that's fine. But I bet there is. So knowing what we know based on today's conversation, why would somebody pick a different charitable structure other than, you know, the pooled income fund? Well, it's a facts and circumstances thing, right? Some right. people don't have errors. Some people don't, you know, I, again, we, we need to look, I always look at the, the entirety of someone's circumstances. I'm dealing with some young guys now who are, you know, cashing out at a very young age, you know, the pooled income fund, the assets are no longer yours, right? right? And you're only getting the income. So you have to say, well, I'm pretty young. I may want those assets to start another business or do something else. And by the way, pooled income funds in the right circumstances, you can actually own an operating business in a pooled income fund. Can't do that in the CRT. So you can have unrelated business taxable income in a pooled income fund because they pay out all their income. So if you want to start a business, with the money in your pooled income fund, you can actually do that. Because I ask that question all the time. I said, what's the, what's the goal of the money? Are you, and I've commonly heard, look, I'm the best and the brightest I've ever been. I'm more capitalized than I've ever been. I have more access to human capital than I ever have. And I made a lot of mistakes in my last business. I'm going to make another run at this. And I think I can do it bigger, better, and more efficiently. They're like, I don't want to lock all this money up somewhere. I want to have access to it. Yep. And you could actually do that. Uh, using the pooled income fund money, you can lend money to a new LLC. You can form a new LLC. And again, if why not operate in something that's outside your estate? I mean, one of the things is as an estate planner, what are we trying to do? We're trying to get assets out of the estate, give up ownership, but still maintain access to income and control. Uh, and to some extent, we could properly structured, we could do that inside a pooled income fund. Very interesting. That is super fun. And I just literally was having this conversation with a client yesterday. So <laughs> it's, uh, you just need to think differently. And once you understand this stuff, you realize you have such a powerful opportunity for great planning. Sure. No, I totally get it. So, you know, I, like I feel like I asked the stuff I wanted to ask. I think like, I feel like we gave a great case study, but I feel like there's always blind spots and stuff. So what are we missing here? What are we not discussing? Or if, if, if I'm an advisor, think about it from a couple of lenses. If I'm an advisor that's listening to this, how do I get better so that I know how to provide this kind of planning for my clients? And if I'm a client listening to this, how do I poke my advisor or whoever and say, hey, man, you why isn't this on the radar? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the one of the presentations that I do is the best. It's called the best kept secret in planning. Uh, pooled income funds have never been done this way before. Uh, as I've said, they've been the province of Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and Stanford organizations. So we've been out there, kind of preaching to the masses uh, as much as possible. I'm open to talking to any about anybody about this anytime. Uh, I seem to be one of the kind of loud voices in the quiet world uh, when it comes to pulled income fund. But I think once people understand it and catch on, uh, there'll be, there should be a groundswell of interest. So how do you work with other professional advisors, like a CPA or an attorney that might have the client trust and they kind of bring up some of these issues? Uh, again, again, we will work them all the way through. I've 
I've written software that will illustrate and cash flow uh, different scenarios for pooled income funds, which I produce basically for no charge in most cases. Sometimes I charge a little consulting fee, but I help people get these up and done and finished and across the line. That's part of what I do as, as in my professional life. Uh, you know, I have a goal, a big, a big goal of raising $10 billion for charity. Uh, not going to be me doing it by myself. It's going to be me doing it with lots of other advisors, with lots of wealthy clients that need the help. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess the question anybody would have is how do you guys charge for what it is that you do? How do you price your services? Well, again, I, uh, depending on the scope of my work, I'm a flat fee kind of person. So I'm a, I build by the project. If there's a bill to be had, someone just asked me for a quick illustration to show a client, I'll do that for free all day long. Sure. Uh, but if it's to, you know, get a project across the line, uh, sometimes there's some implementation, uh, remuneration that I'll share with the other advisor. And we always just work that out ahead of time. Sure. Uh, my fees are not outrageous or I wouldn't have any business. So understood. I get it. I got asked that by some, I, some media source called me yesterday and said, man, it sounds like there's a lot of fees in this particular thing. And I walked them through an exact fact pattern. And I'm like, well, that client paid less than 3000 in fees and they saved over $900,000 in taxes. So I don't know. You tell me, is that egregious? Yeah. Uh, yeah no, I, I normally say, you know, the government's paying my fee, right? Right. Uh, I, if I save you $3 million of $3 million, if I give you a $3 million income tax deduction and save you capital gains on $10 million, uh, and you have to pay some money. I is, is that money come from the government? <laughs> That's right. That's right. At the end of the day, if you follow the so so bringing up that you know the average person when you tell them that we can take money back from the federal government by taking advantages of opportunities in the tax code, they're like, well, that sounds too good to be true. This has to be illegal. This is going to open up an audit, right? Can you speak to that? Well, again, uh, you know. Pooled income funds have been part of the tax code since 1969. Nothing new, very old, very cold law. Uh, every revenue ruling that's come since then has done things to clarify what we can do and what we can't do. Uh, when you make a large gift that's non-cash, uh, there is a qualified appraisal requirement in the form that gets filed, and we we help them hire the appraiser. We help them fill out the form 8283. If they're gift is accompanied by the appraiser, uh, you know, appropriately, the IRS just, there's nothing to audit. <laughs> uh, you know, charitable income tax deductions show up on 90% of the tax returns filed in the United States. It's a, a lot of people give money to charity. It's not an uncommon thing. Sure. Uh, sure. So is this the type of planning you set up for yourself or your kids on board with this? I don't even know if you have kids. I didn't even ask you. <laughs> oh, well, I, I happen to, yes. <laughs> I have a couple of those uh, and then some grandchildren. And I will say that my estate planning is in good order. Good stuff. You know, it's funny. I The conversation I had with the client yesterday, I said, you know, um, we don't live on assets. We live on income generated by assets. And and everybody has this, not everybody, but many people have this fallacy that, you know, I'm more wealthy if I have this asset or I'm more in control if I have this asset. I'm like, but maybe it, it depends on what you do with it. You know what I'm saying? Where it is and if it's generating income for you and how sustainable that is over the long term, right? Exactly. It's 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 funny because the generation before me, my parents' generation, you know, they all wanted to live off the income, right? That was what they thought about. 
Uh, now as planners, when we say, well, let's get the assets out of your estate, but make sure you have income and all of the planning do uh, that I do is focused on, if we do all of this, are you going to be able to live the way you want to live? I don't want to compromise your lifestyle. I want to make your lifestyle better. I want to assure it. But we, as you know, the way the government wants to get their share is by taxing your assets. So we got to make sure that, you know, we get growth out of your estate for the future because that's where they're going to get their money. So let's get rid of it. And it's, it's hard for people to wrap their head around because they lived in an entirely different way their entire life. Yeah, I agree with that. It's really hard for people to give up the, I built this asset, I created it and it's my, and to give up that is an emotionally challenging thing. It takes a lot of good planning and a lot of counseling and teaching for them to understand. And that's why I approach planning the way I approach planning. I don't, I'm, you know, everybody does it the way they do it. I do it the way I do because I think it's effective. I think we really have to demonstrate to people that they're going to be okay, that these decisions are good decisions and they're not going to suffer from making those decisions. They're actually going to profit from them. Sure. Well, you know, the past couple of years today, so far, we've talked a lot about what the opportunities are when we're more educated, more informed and understand how to do some good planning. But over the past couple of years, if anything, I think we've learned that, you know, uh, the world and life can throw us a curveball and throw us some complications and, and create challenges. Right. So are there any challenges that you have in your business or what are the things that you struggle with or has the pandemic and COVID negatively impacted any elements of what you're doing? Uh, I don't think the pandemic and COVID, you know, I've doing, I've been doing business online. My business is advisor facing, right? I, I don't have retail clients. I, I work with other advisors around the country and I've done it this way for 15 years. So technology finally caught everybody up to me. I've been doing it the way I do it for forever. I've done, you know, Zoom meetings or back in the day, it was go to meeting uh, was the yeah. predominant technology. You know, I've presented plans to clients in California for 15 years that way, Um now it's just become accepted. Uh, and I think my reach is a little broader than it's been. The toughest part for me is staying on top of the evolution of the financial services industry, uh, the advisor approach, and the new uh, kind of what everybody's thinking about right now. You know, I, I always stay up on the tax law. But, you know, there's new products that come along and there's new ideas that come along and trying to integrate those into my planning models has always been the challenge. Well, pulled income funds, I didn't know very much about seven years ago. So I had to go learn about them and become good at them so I could tell other people. Uh, and I'm sure next year there'll be some new idea that I have to go learn. And that's fine. I love to do that. Well, that's... Uh that's what makes a good planner a good planner. There's always an opportunity to stay ahead of the curve in product development and or, uh, you know, tax code changes. I mean, look, they've been trying to pass this $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill, which clearly isn't getting through. If it gets through at all, nowhere near its original version or intent, right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, one of the things, and again, I get asked this all the time, you know, have you, have you read the new tax proposal? I said, I don't read anything till it passes. Yeah. Uh, in 1986, the year I referred to before, and I, you probably don't remember this because you're too young, but there <laughs> are companies, uh, RIA and CCH, would send out these big, thick books, right, about what the proposals 
were. And we would stay up and study them. So we would be up to date. And then the law would pass. And it was completely different than what was in the books. And I just said, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. It's just a waste of time. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> uh, when it passes, it passes. I'll learn it. Uh, it won't take me long. Uh, and then we'll figure out what to do for yeah, a lot of speculation on something that ultimately never happens. I think today in our in the world we're in today, there's a lot of stuff that gets talked about because it creates headlines and optics. But at the end of the day, people just can't vote against some of that stuff for certain reasons, political will, whatever it is, and it just doesn't get done. Well, and we have access to that information much faster than we used to, right? Because of the the constant stream of, you know, streaming everything. So yeah. it used to be it would take four or five days a week before we would hear what the congressional reports were, or what they were talking about. Now we get it 30 seconds later and everybody's up in arms and, you know, what's this going to mean? And so, you know, it, it gets in people's heads faster and it causes a lot of anxiety faster than it than it ever used to. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. I agree. Well, good stuff. Well, Randy, I've appreciated the conversation today. I think this has been fun and educational. Uh, any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, no, Matt, it's just, uh, you know, but this is I love to do this. This is fun for me. Uh, I think there's a huge opportunity for many, many people that they're not taking. Uh, and, I, you know, if we can provide any guidance for anybody, I'm always glad to do it. Uh, and it's just wonderful to have these opportunities to get in the public forum and, you know, tell more people because, uh, you know, I can only do so much by myself. Sure. Well, we're going to post all the links and everything on the bottom of this when we publish, but tell everybody how the best way to find you is. How do you, what's your preferred method of being found? Well, uh, my email, Randy at twohawksconsulting.com. Uh, go to my website, which is just twohawksconsulting.com. Um, always respond to everything pretty quickly. Good stuff. Well, Randy, I appreciate the time today and everyone. Thanks for listening in. Uh, this was another episode of the Tax Alpha podcast with Matt Chancy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.